Welcome, welcome, traders, to the Breakout Show. Today is Wednesday, October, oh, two, two ahead, September, September 29th. Let me see. Am I right on this? Uh, the only way I know is by checking. Yes. Wednesday, September 29th. It's the last week of September. Uh, and very interesting markets here. Of course, uh, you know, the markets are bearish currently. And um, normally the breakout show is is primarily focused on broader subjects. Like uh, it's, it's focused on being the water cooler talk show. Uh Lots of entertainment normally because we're covering topics in and around the entire uh, world of trading, not not specifically diving into charts or things like that. But when the market is really bearish, then you know I play that heavy metal intro. <laughs> so it probably woke you up out there. If the coffee was fading off from this morning, then uh, you're welcome for that. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, about markets, right? Uh, when when markets seem to have that uh, that bearish effect, whenever they're they're crashing and everyone's uh, saying that the sky is falling, um, you know, I, I find that's a really good opportunity. Uh, one historically to 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 find positions in the market to hold for a longer term, uh, and and two, um, just a really good opportunity to to really back back up like back way way up and uh and take a closer look at what's going on and you know getting a feel for for where we are uh, just historically for trading so let's go let's go broad let's go like really broad and start talking about some some big things with the market so first up I want to say uh, hey to the chat room. Of course, we have the breakout show chat room. If you're on the Wall Street IO website, uh, you want to click on that uh, chat icon in the upper right-hand corner. And then at the very top, you have a, a, a drop-down menu. And you want to scroll through that drop-down menu because normally, I'm like you, normally I'm in the general chat area. Uh, but for this show, you have to scroll on down and boom, there's the breakout show. Right, So you have to be in this chat room for me to, uh, to, to actually see things. Uh, Bob B., Helping me out with the sound check. I appreciate that, Bob. Uh, Dr. Fish saying, hey, uh, made it today. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, good to see you, Dr. Fish. Uh, Dr. Fish, every time uh, you're, in the, you're in the chat room, it makes me think, uh, man, when uh, you know, when are we going to be able to uh, to possibly have another summit, a Wall Street AO summit, right? So uh, we had one a couple years back. Of course, um, COVID COVID culture kind of hit, and uh, and now I'm starting to wonder in my head, like uh, maybe maybe it would be possible for a 2022 Wall Street I/O summit. Uh, I think that would be pretty fun, uh, but you know we'd need a lot of advance notice in the community for that uh, before we we dive into that. So let's take a look. Let's take a look at markets, right? Like I said, this is not usually uh, a um, uh, an analysis show, uh, technical analysis show. So I want to aim to, um, you know, to something uh, for something that would be a little bit more um, broad, I guess. Right? It's back way, way up here. Uh, did you move to California? Yeah, uh, Doctor Fish. I'm out in California, out here in sunny Santa Barbara, uh, suffering in the uh, 70 degree uh, weather. <laughs> 70 degree weather super bright super uh, sunny out here as always um so let's back up i'm gonna load in spy i'm gonna load in spy hey paul paul j joining us from new jersey good to see you paul and uh yeah spy here is uh you know it's having a, a green day right um i i personally don't think that uh 
that were completely out of the woods as far as bearishness goes. Um, I would love to see if we could get down uh, in October down to this, um, you know, sub 420 uh, down in like 4, 416, 415 area. Uh, that would be, that would represent a whole whopping 10% down. And if you didn't see last night uh, on the community wall, I posted something, um, you know, just taking a little bit broader view uh, of the SPY, right? So um, what I mentioned here is that uh, yesterday we had that, that big down day, for instance. Um, you know, I lucked out on a small short hedge, got out uh, on that yesterday. Um, but you know what's up for the year? Well, year to date, uh, year to date the SPY is up 15%-ish. Uh, the Qs are up 14-ish percent. I don't know what, what it looks like today. Maybe it's 15%. I don't know. Um, but that's that's pretty muted, right? Doesn't it feel... Um, doesn't it feel like like markets have just been on a tear and that it's just been up, 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 up? Uh, well, that is true. But what's also true is that volatility has been uh, very, very low <laughs> for this entire year. So even though it feels like there's just day after day of the market never, never really uh, having any kind of crash or any any kind of, uh, you know, uh, sustained bearishness uh, on the upside. It's not as crazy, wild, bullish as uh, as it might feel. Uh, you know, I think um, what we're we were sitting at about maybe eighteen or nineteen percent at the peak of this year, uh, and that's by no means wild, right? Uh, if you look at last year, um, if we ignore the COVID dip, just from where the year started and where the year ended, uh, you know, there was a much more pronounced <laughs> effect. Uh, tech ended up like 50% on the year. Um, Q's, or sorry, SPY, I think, ended up uh, well over 20% for the year. I want to say it was like 30% for the year. Um, correct me if I'm wrong in the chat. Uh, so so this year, by comparison, you know, not, not as crazy, insane, bullish in terms of magnitude. Um, you know, I think, I think overall, I want to get into this, uh, I think overall with the markets, and chime in here. Give me your idea on this. Um, do you think? Here, I'll, I'll pose this question. What do you think's in the cards in the next, say, couple of years uh, for the markets? Um, you know, I think a lot of traders out there. It feels like there's always this perma bear thing in the back of their head, uh, where where they're just expecting the next big crash, right? And um, sure, it could happen. Sure, it could come about. Uh, I'm curious to to know what you think. Where where or when uh, do you think that crash might come about? And uh, do you have an idea of maybe what what might cause it? Right. Um, one of the things I was watching uh, recently. So so there are a few YouTube channels I like to keep keep uh, uh, keep track of. Um, and of course, there are a lot of traders out there who like uh, Zero Hedge, for instance. But one of these channels uh, was was breaking down things generationally. And whenever I whenever I look at the broad picture things, I really like to think about the broad broad picture, like going way, 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 way back. Uh, and so to do that, I'm just loading up a paper trading account here on uh, on Thinkorswim, uh, boom, boom, boom. and I want to load in a time series that goes way, way outside. <laughs> Of what's on the site, uh, I want to go to monthly. Uh, let's see, max, and let me go to monthly. Da, da, da. How about quarter? Yeah, quarterly even. Okay, boom, right. 
So let's see, how far back will this go? It won't even let me go back that far. So uh, I did not test this ahead of time. I'm gonna have to, uh, yeah, it looks like it goes all the way back to 1994, uh, but it won't let me go back further. Uh, maybe that's quarters. Maybe I need to change that. Uh, maybe it's easier for it if I change it to a uh, month. No, no, it kind of, oh, I'm using SPY, uh, SPX. <laughs> there we go. So I'm going back here and I'm gonna have to change this to a log scale. So uh, let's change that setting. Uh, I think it's here and yes. So uh, boom, price axis, uh, log, 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 log scale. <laughs> boom, all right. Okay, uh, and this is going back to 19, uh, 1935, 1940, things like that. Um, one of the things that, that this uh, analysis covered here was generational analysis, right? Because um, it wanted to point out that uh, this, this area back here, 1950s, this is, this is basically where, um, where the boomer generation was born and if we look over here, this is roughly where the uh, millennial generation uh, was born, right? And uh, you know, this this era, these two eras, you know, we have this 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 kind of like chop chop zone, right? And the idea here is uh, is is kind of based on uh, generational dynamics, right? Uh, the idea of saying that. Peak earnings and peak productivity is achieved from the ages of 35 to 54. So there's like this middle 20-year stretch uh, where most, most people in the population are earning their peak earnings, right? And that uh, toward the opposite ends of life, you know, in their, their teens and their uh, teens in their 20s, for instance, um, you know, there's... Uh, there's uh, not a lot of earning going on, not a lot of uh, productivity. And then as, as you crest and go into retirement, again, there's not a lot of productivity and typically earnings go down, right? But that peak spending and productivity and earnings is right there in that, that 35 to 54 for the general population. <clears throat> so when, when most of the population is, uh, is in, that, in that kind of era, then you you run into uh, a scenario of of like the market migrating migrating higher uh, migrating to a new a new point and then um, and then that kind of peaks around that uh, when when the oldest in that generation start to start to hit around say fifty five or so it's it's very loose there's some crossover there then you have this like sideways sideways motion um, so going back to this uh, to this chart. You know, for that, uh, the prior generation started getting into their 50, 55s uh, in retirement right around here. That lasts for roughly uh, 16, 20 year stretch, you know, and then uh, right around here. So, so boomers born around in this area and they are hitting their 35 to 55 year range uh, somewhere around here, right? So that's in the 80s all the way through the 90s. And then we have a 16 year stretch sideways and then boom, now we have the millennial generation and they uh, are starting right in 2019, I believe, is when they are starting into their 35 and up. 
right? So I thought that was a very interesting, um, very interesting chart. Here we go. Very interesting chart. Very interesting consideration. Um, the takeaway on that, by the way, if you're curious, uh, is is that uh, there's the the potential from a generational standpoint. There's a gen, there's a the potential for the market to keep on just moving higher, migrating higher, um, all the way into 2034, right? Um, the great irony there is that uh, this this happens every 20 to 15 years where there's an entire generation, for instance, and going back to that chart, there's an entire generation that uh, viewed this era. They were they, you know, they were born here and they grew up in this era era in their early life, knowing that the stock market is just a giant scam and it's not going to ever go anywhere and tend to miss out on this huge move up. It's it's normally normally for most out there. Um, let me reset this and see if that fixes it. No, I think maybe it's because of this. Uh, see if I can get this fixed. No, I apologize about that. Uh, can't seem to reset this chart, but uh, but normally it's not until you know right around in those last few years of the of the the ascent up. Uh, before people start getting into their heads like, oh, maybe I can trust markets again and I and decide to to really, you know, start heavily investing. And of course, that that's leading into the late stages and then you just go nowhere. <laughs> There's that lack of trust again. So the irony here is that this this kind of was the best the best time uh, to start, you know, uh, investing and just planting money long term, you know, right right around this uh, 20, you know, post post uh, global financial cri uh, crisis uh, anywhere in here, I would say would have been uh, a very ideal time to start getting in uh, because in theory, anyway, uh, this thing can keep on just charging higher. So let me check in the room because I've been talking for a while here and, uh, and I wanna get an idea of, um, uh, of what, what our community might think of that generational uh, idea uh, about stock markets, right? That would be, let's see, Bob, you have, would be nice. Okay, a little conversation. Um, yeah, so not, not much in the market. I guess I find this stuff really fascinating <laughs> in there. Um, but, and it's also, it's also kind of sobering. Um, it's sobering because uh, a lot of the news out there is like, well, this is, this is it. Uh, you know, we're going to hit hyperinflation and hyperinflation is going to destroy everything and uh you know that's going to the the market's just going to crash and nothing's going to be worth anything um i'll talk about about inflation and why it's not the the crazy um the crazy boogeyman that that uh, everyone really thinks of and why it's specifically it's not a scenario uh inflation is not going to turn into the weimar republic it's just realistically it's not uh there are four very solid um bits of information that need to exist, uh, that uh, prerequisites for, um, to create that environment of hyperinflation where there are wheel, wheelbarrow, wheelbarrows of money to buy a loaf of bread and the wheelbarrow uh, itself ends up being more more valuable than the money that's that's inside of it. That, that we don't have the, uh, the prerequisites for that, right? Um, so, eh. 
let's uh, let's also take a look here uh, at the at the charts again. And uh, let me let me see, Doctor Fish, uh, Greg, George G, uh, very interesting. Doctor Fish makes sense from the standpoint of family formation, which drives working and spending. Yeah, that's that's uh, that is that is true. Uh, a lot of um, a lot of the scare recently has been the idea that the uh, baby boomer generation is all retiring, and so the velocity of money will will drop down. And I do think that there is a velocity of money slowdown in general um, uh, happening. But the irony there is that when the velocity of money slows down, uh, that it acts as a deflationary force. So um, yeah, there's that. Uh, technology is also deflationary because uh, there's more productivity for less work. Um, and uh, there, there are lots of things in the equation. Um, I'll come out and just say that I think uh, Milton Friedman was a, just an idiot, <laughs> an idiot that was, uh, that was not an idiot, but he was wrong. He was somebody smart who was wrong. There's a difference. He was somebody smart who was wrong, but what he was, what he was promoting uh, was very, very beneficial to very powerful people, so so everything that he created was just adopted as the the complete truth. And what's interesting to me is every every single time uh, Jerome Powell comes up uh, into some sort of congressional congressional committee, uh, Powell has more of the data ahead of him. And what he's met with are at least all these questions rooted in monetarism and uh, in monetary theory that was you know uh, largely. Uh, fathered or or created by Milton Friedman, and most all of that data has been proven wrong, <laughs> or not data, but most of that that hypothesis that theory has been proven wrong by reality by data. So you have Powell here saying like, no, no, the data doesn't show that. The data doesn't show that. No, that's disproven. No, that's disproven. <laughs> and uh, and you have senators and Congress people and politicians who just won't won't. Get off of their, um, you know, uh, wherever you know, whatever their point of view is. They don't, they don't want to know about the data. They just want to have that talking point um, in there. It's really, it's really interesting. So, one of the core things that Milton Friedman was wrong about is that he ig completely ignored velocity of money. He assumed that that would be a constant, and so he, like, one of the big weaknesses in his in his ideas is like he just didn't ever think of a scenario where like, oh. Yeah, if you um, if you if the velocity of money drops, then yeah, I guess you could have more money in the system, and it wouldn't really uh, create a problem. The other thing that he's he's very uh, wrong about is he he ignores distribution. Um, so you know he he assumed that when you put money into the system, that it would distribute. And uh, reality is that since the '80s, the more money you pump in, the more a cloud forms in the financial system, and it just stays there um, perpetually. It it, uh, it doesn't doesn't there is no actual trickle down. Um, that's not a political statement. That is just data. That's <laughs> just data. So um, let me go back over here. Uh, I believe inflation is transitory too. Yeah, I mean it's it's going to be hard case. It's going to be a hard case to prove that that uh, inflation is going to go uh, go crazy. Um, over the thing over the next few uh, years, and um, and there is this thought that uh, uh, politically the 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 um, thing that's being 
fought over is whether or not that inflation is caused by monetary theory or monetarism or supply and demand. And actually, I think that it's supply and demand. And it's not that demand is high. It's literally that supply is low. <laughs> like, like there's all a very low, there's constraints. We can't get chips. Uh, we can't ch get chips produced to get into cars. And then cars to, you know, uh, there are tons of cars just sit inventory sitting idle waiting for chips. Um, and so you have this scenario where demand doesn't need to change at all. And yet supply is just not there. Um, so until that part, uh, that structural part is actually fixed, then yeah, nothing's nothing's really going to change. Um, change on that on that front, uh, but it will change. It will change over time, and um, yeah, we'll see. Um, spy, yeah. So that leads us here to the spy, and it makes me wonder. Okay, you know what what is uh, what realistically could possibly happen in spy? Uh, I don't think that we're in for uh, some massive, massive move down, for instance. I don't think that we're going to come all the way down here. Um, statistically, uh, when when the market has been in this condition, uh, if you go ahead and you look ahead four years, um, so there's some another, uh, there's some some other analysis um, that came from a, a YouTuber. Um, that I like to like to check in with every now and then because uh, I like I like his his broad views. Uh, is a guy Cavacho Cavacho Capital, and uh, yeah, he takes this long view uh, of things and he'll compare stuff. And uh, one of the the uh, his conclusions about uh, the market today uh, is that if you know comparing it to uh, like eleven other historical uh, scenarios where we're in a similar condition. Um, the four-year outlook has been uh, anywhere from uh, four years from now. The market's typically has historically been about seventy to a hundred percent higher than it is today, <laughs> right? So, you know, that's that's a very interesting idea that uh, that four years from now, uh, you know, you could be possibly open up your screen and and SPX would be uh, staring back at you with like a, a what is that? 70 percent times that is like like seven thousand or eight thousand or maybe that's yeah probably like six or seven thousand i think is is what that uh would would equate to um not good with the quick math in my head um it also makes it a, a very interesting case in my head for uh for purchasing leaps and cash flowing those for a very long time um, so while while we're staring at uh, all of a whopping four percent down, I believe what is that four fifty four? Let's do some let's do some math. Does anybody know off the top of their head? There we go. I need to get this out here. But uh, four fifty four minus uh, what's by at four thirty six. And then divide it by that original basis. So yeah, we're down a whole roughly four percent uh, from that top, which is just nothing, right? Um, <laughs> the market, the market's down four percent, and you, and already everyone's just like, it, it feels like everyone's running around uh, with their head chopped off, like oh, it's the end of the world, right? Um, off of four percent, four percent. So that isn't that nuts. That's that's nothing. 
that's like a blink of an eye. Four percent is a uh, is is like one strong week of performance in the spy. <laughs> but but hey, you know, here we are, and uh, and yeah, everyone's everyone's calling for the end of the world. Um, I personally, I mean, I'm not completely immune for that. Uh, from that, I'm I am calling for. Uh, I think I think um, this range down here in this four four twenty I I four twenty four 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 fifteen area, um, but even that I know isn't it's not a huge amount down, right? So boom. So I'm actually starting uh, personally. I'm starting to think along the lines of like this uh, of um, a very uh, uh, of leaps cash flowing leaps uh, way out in time. And um, and that's something that I'll just throw up the disclaimer. So even though the disclaimer is at the very beginning, um, I'm not uh, a I'm not a trade advisor. Uh, I'm not, you know, certified to, to give any kind of like trading advice. And so um, I like to joke around when Aaron's here, I like to joke around that uh, if you hear me come up with an idea, uh, then just ignore it. Run the other way, <laughs> right? Uh, that's some that's some humility um, that uh, that uh, I, I say in a very joking way, just like with the car talk. Uh, there was this old car talk uh, radio show, and uh, and they would always joke about uh, you know <laughs> how you should never listen to their advice. Um, or Joe Rogan, I like Joe Rogan, and he's always talking about how uh, he's the last person you should listen to uh, for for real advice, for your source of information, of, of usable information. It's just entertainment. Uh, so, it's, yeah, this is also, I think, entertainment here. Yeah. Um, how does cash flow leap work? Uh, George G., uh, same way as a covered call, right? So uh, if you can imagine a covered call, uh, you own the underlying and you're you you'd be covered call you for every hundred uh, shares that you own you're selling a call against it some call out of the money um, against it you're you're taking in some income on that um, well the idea with cash flowing a leap is that instead of instead of paying um, uh, instead of paying for instance a uh, 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 hundred times the spy uh, so what would that be um, Quick math: forty thousand uh, dollars in uh, well, forty-three thousand, whatever it is, forty-three thousand ish uh, dollars to sell one call contract um, in the spy. Uh, I would instead go out to January of twenty twenty-three, right? So that's over a year uh, out in expiration, and I would look at um, something in the money or something, uh, something like that. I think a four hundred, a four hundred call in um, uh, 400 strike call and spy expiring in 2023, I think currently goes for somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, $60, which would be $6,000 nominal value. Um, and of course, $6,000 is much cheaper than paying $43,000 uh, for the current price. If, if you were talking apples to apples and at the money, um, someone can double check this, but I think, uh, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 or $35, uh, for a, an at the money call expiring January of 2023. Um, and that's, that's of course is, is much lower than $43,000, right? That's going to be in the, uh, 30, $3,000 to three, $3,500 range. And then having that position, I'm then able to sell calls um, 
in in a, uh, a diagonal kind of expiring format. But I'm able to cash flow out of the money calls uh, from that point. Now, one of the issues there is that you are limited to, to calendar spreads. Essentially, it'd be an insanely massive calendar spread where you have your leap over here and then you have your your uh, uh, out of the money. Well, your leap would become the the lowest point because the lowest point in that spread could be a calendar. As soon as you go under, then your your brokerage throws out all sorts of like <laughs> all sorts of warnings about uh, about how it doesn't make any sense what you're what you're trying to do. Um, and um, I might be wrong on that. I think if maybe if price is below it or something like that, it doesn't matter. But um, but the idea generally is to sell at you know the same strike or or above uh, and hoping that. You know, the market's playing along with that. Someone else can confirm that. Um, I might be wrong. You might be able to just sell any out-of-the-money strike, regardless of where your leap strike is um, on that. But you're, but the idea then is to is to collect that. Uh, and generally, if you're if you're used to um, the the theta decay curve, uh, theta decay curve where you know it's out it's out in uh, in time, and as time goes, it just starts to collapse down. Um, then you're looking around 40 to 50 days is where that curve starts to really kind of accelerate. Um, so you can imagine being a, a few standard deviations out. Um, I believe last time I looked at this, uh, a couple, two standard deviations out, which is like 95% chance of expiring out of the money. We're going for, I don't know, one or two dollars in 40 days, 60 days out. So you can imagine having uh, a handful of those leaps um, uh, where I can imagine this. There you go. Like I, I try to avoid we talk, you talk. So I can imagine having uh, a lot of those uh, leaps and then going out and just cash flowing, cash flowing an extra uh, amount of money um, you know, every, every few months. You know, uh, it, it also is nice <laughs> if, if you're underlying uh, your underlying position is also going to be profitable at the end of it. Um, I think the statistics that I saw about years, years after years, and where we are currently in the whole the whole business cycle, uh, there's a very strong chance that um, on on a pullback event, you know, down down to the, like the four uh, twenty or four uh, fifteen or something like that, uh, or get that VIX that VIX spiking up over. Uh, over a few deviations to the north, um, that there's a high probability of that, of that, uh, of the stock market ending up um, uh, recovering and, and coming and being higher by I don't know 10% at some point in the next year, right? So statistically, there's a bunch of stuff that supports the idea for it as well, which I which I think is really good. That being said, I'm throwing a lot of numbers out there, and uh, again. <laughs> If you like the idea, research it on your own. Uh, but don't don't use me as your your source, your uh, your main source of information on for something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, I've been doing that with Apple and others. Yeah, Doctor Fish, exactly. Um, ideally, uh, ideally, Doctor Fish, you know, and others like the underlying stock. Ideally, would be one that would uh, also just rise in value, so that so that the leaps. Uh, involved also, uh, of course, rise in value, right? So uh, that at the money expiring in 2023, that was priced at about 30, 35, um, uh, 30, 35 dollars. That is uh, essentially, 
you know, for it to, to, to hit intrinsic value and break even, that means that uh, the price of SPY where it is now sometime over the next year would have to increase by uh, not even 10%. Um, it would have to increase by 7.5%, 7%, right? Um, in order for that, uh, for that to, to hit break-even value um, next year. Uh, and, and I think there's a generally pretty good chance of that, especially if it's down around the 44, uh, what was that, 412? Uh, I was aiming for like 415, 420. Uh, for a pullback uh, that would also land us coincidentally um, uh, land the market right at its 200 moving day average if it did did get out there um, I'm, I'm actually thinking that it it would happen later in the month um, for for various for for the reason of vix expiration as a uh, as a, uh, a volatility event um, I think that that would be gosh I just need to get a calendar up here um <laughs> gosh well uh gosh uh so so let me see one um da -da -da, tuesdays and wednesday six uh six would be first wednesday uh, 13th uh, second uh, so after the 20th of uh, uh, of October is where I would uh, I would expect some bottoming to happen um, in the market, uh, yeah. And it doesn't really matter news because as as many of you know, uh, I don't think news is the prime mover of markets. <laughs> the outside of credit market liquidity, um, I ignore all that news, and uh, and I don't think that um, the big institutions really uh, make make a lot of their decisions based on news. Yeah, Jake is, uh, as Dr. Fish says, Jake is a master at this stuff. Um, as far as uh, selling, selling uh, naked puts and, uh, you know, selling, selling calls and uh, reinvesting that and really building up a portfolio, a growth portfolio, Jake is awesome for that. And, um, and as far as like building generational wealth, I would say, you know, I, I pointed out that you know, around 2012, 2014 uh, to 2020, uh, or even just like 20, you know, go way back, 2000, around 2009, uh, you know, 2009 to 2019 was an awesome time at any time to get into the market to build a generational kind of, uh, kind of portfolio, um, you know, for, for retirement, um, you know, for anybody who's doing that uh, for the kids, they'd be set for their kids or grandkids, they'd be set for life. And the, the just the idea that overall, uh, this from a generational standpoint, uh, this could keep going all the way till the year 2034 before hitting a, uh, a 16 to 20 year sideways cycle, right? Um, I think it's great. I think that's uh, that's fantastic, right? So um, if you if you believe in that type of like very very large uh, secular uh, style of cycle and uh, and population data, uh, then then yeah, there's plenty of time to um, to to I guess um, you know get that compounding going right, and um, 
and surprisingly as well, it also it also flies in the face. I was I was thinking. I got to admit. Um, so now I'm starting to change change some of my thinking. I was so I was so convinced by that. Uh, and there's a book that I've also read called the the Fourth Turning by Howell. Um, this book, ah, oh, so so very interesting. Um, if you don't want to read it uh, then there's plenty of YouTube videos out there that kind of break it down which I think the YouTube videos do an even better job because it, it, it really calls for uh, charts <laughs> this this book is uh, is very very uh, uh, dense but it, it really really calls for for charting and diagrams um, to, to understand it but I, I read through it brilliant book um, it has me rethinking uh, just this idea of expecting a, a, a 1999-style crash uh, or even a 2008-style crash um, in the markets, right? Uh, it has me has me wondering, like, okay, well, you know, maybe I should revisit that. Maybe, uh, maybe you know, long term, maybe I should uh, think a little bit more broadly. So, so forever, uh, and and I should say forever. So since about about around here, 2000, um, 2010, 2011. Uh, time frame. I've been entertaining this idea of a super cycle, a super cycle lasting from 16 to 18 years, uh, and that would place us boom smack dab coming up here uh, around that that say 2026 era uh, area, you know, before before having some big massive pullback like you know like the kinds here. Um, but when considering it from a more generational point of view so yeah considering it from a more uh, generational point of view gosh this logarithmic chart is hard to work with um, that that really doesn't come into play until you know until that generational like handoff right so I think like back here for instance um, which was gosh it's hard to read so right around the 60s, things just started to go sideways, right? And I think that that's that's primarily a generational thing where uh, you, you where we'd be ending up in a scenario where the next thing uh, would be millennials entering the end of their productivity life life cycle, um, and then you know just this kind of like sideways sideways movement, and that's pretty far off. Uh, on the way up to that. Maybe I can reset this. Maybe I can look for something else. Like Google won't work. Uh, SBX will work. We'll reload. Yes. Okay. So I won't touch it this time, I promise. Um, so so yeah, uh, on the way up between these, yeah, there are there are pullbacks, but they're just not, we're just, you know, the market in this type of uh, productivity era, 20 year span, just just typically doesn't see dramatic like insane pullbacks like uh i could say that yes there was 1987 you know there's this big thing um but that's that's like a 20 percent pullback so those 20 percent pullbacks are just phenomenal right they're just wow you know um huge huge things but a lot of times you're you know we're looking at these really small kinds of uh um 10 10 percent pullbacks to five percent pullbacks and it's not until uh until that cresting of the productivity life cycle where where finally the market really gets turning and really really starts to 
to have these like big big moves down of course this is a log scale chart here so uh this this uh in nominal terms this is a giant point move <laughs> versus this down here back in the 60s um but yeah they're kind of evened out by this logarithmic scale uh coming up here right i mean from here to here for instance i mean that that represents like what uh i think it was like a 40 percent drop but the log scale makes it uh difficult to 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 see that um it makes it look much smaller than it really is um so yeah the fact that this was a 20 percent drop uh should have you know uh, within this within this, within this secular cycle uh, should have set off all sorts of alarms to be like hey this is just the free money opportunity <laughs> to uh, boom come in and if you if if trading options for instance boom you know come back up and just relaunch up here um, so knowing that you know for the next uh, for the next few years um, I'm just gonna keep it in the back of my head that uh, that uh, 10 10 to 15 percent, off the highs, it represents in a very crazy high amount of deviation uh, relative to the secular cycle, and uh, it might might present a good a good buying opportunity. Let's see here, what do we got? Uh, Jake's income trading meetings on Thursday open to everyone. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, yes, mentioned that show. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and I believe Jake has, if you're curious, if you just want to see what they're like, uh, you can head over to the university section and head on down to income trading. And uh, yeah, September 23rd, boom, that's Jake. That's Jake right there. Uh, the, the other thing that's kind of cycling around in the news uh, recently that, that uh, I think bears some, some um, interest is China. Right, so there, there's this uh, also this idea, uh, and it's an idea that would be um, rooted in reality. And I'm I'm completely open-minded on this one uh, that the China's debt bubble, if it crashes, uh, could create a systemic um, implosion, right? Uh, something similar to the global financial crisis. I don't think that's going to happen. And like I said, I'm open I'm open to change if somebody can prove me wrong on this. Um, but the the global financial crisis came about from uh, a global participation in uh, the over leveraging, right? So it is true that uh, most other nations in the world, in some way, are tied to American markets, um, but their exposure to China markets is probably a lot less than I think um, might be might be uh, suspected by the general public. Um, you know, you look at Ray Dalio, you look at uh, JP Morgan, you look at the very large um, investment banks, and most of them recognize that uh, there's a bubble going on in China and that none of the Chinese data can really be trusted from the government. And I think that's left, uh, I think that's uh, created a scenario where, yes, companies are invested in China, specifically their manufacturing uh, sectors. Uh, but they're keeping the real estate and a lot of the businesses at arm's length as investment vehicles. Um, so I don't see uh, a lot tied up into that. Um, not not like a uh, I don't I don't see the the same knock on effect of uh, of everything kind of being held together by a keystone um, like it was uh, in two thousand nine, right? 
there's also an argument to be made for uh, long-term capital management. So long-term capital management started having problems in 1997. Uh, that came to a um, uh, that that came to a, a heated climax at, at August of 1998, um, primarily because of the Russian financial crisis and long-term capital management was heavily vested in that and needed to be bailed out. Um, I can actually load that up here on the chart. You can see it. It's kind of fun. Uh, but right around right around in there, hopefully this won't, won't mess anything up. Uh, but you see there's this, this move up and then boom, we had this move down in the markets. That was that was a Russian financial crisis. And more importantly, it was long-term ma uh, capital management crashing. So one of the biggest reasons why that was significant is that a lot of pension funds across the country were um, were were tied to long-term capital management. Um, we don't have that scenario now. Um, one of the things that Jake taught me was that uh, if you look over Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, uh, and AIG. Why did AIG get bailed out? It was because a lot of uh, pensions and municipal pensions, uh, municipal funds across the entire country were heavily invested in AIG. So bailing out AIG was a way to uh, preserve some some amount of retirement in the uh, in uh, across the country. So that's why the Fed, you know, came to action. And the same thing that happened uh, back back in the nineties. For long-term capital management, right? This this uh, dip right there. So there there is a logical case to be made. Like, okay, well, what if uh, the real estate bubble in China pops, right? Um, but I would I would argue that um, I'm open to the idea of systemic risk. But I I'd want someone. I don't know if someone out in the community can find it or something like that. I haven't been able to find it. I want somebody to find. Find what the large investment is uh, that even municipal funds are tied into that is over leveraged and attached to China and their real estate market, right? So if you can, if, if somebody can come out and, and show me that and say like, oh, well, you know, this, this entire thing represents the collateral asset value of this massive institution, maybe it'd be BlackRock, right? Uh, and if it craters, then BlackRock craters and this $9 trillion, because that's why I use it, BlackRock's worth $9 trillion in assets, probably $10 million, uh, by now. I don't know. It's been like a few months since I saw that. But $9 trillion in assets, if BlackRock crashed, then yeah, I could see I could see that there's probably a lot tied up with it. Um, but last time I checked, BlackRock is uh, busy buying up all, all of the uh, American real estate market. <laughs> Right. So one of the big drivers, of course, in, in real estate prices is that uh, I think BlackRock constituted maybe 20 to 25 percent of all real estate sales last year. Uh, we're not BlackRock, but but Wall Street in general, instead of uh, instead of people looking to buy houses, it was people looking to become landlords. And that was Wall Street. And they constituted roughly, I think, 20 to 25 percent of all all real estate sales over the last year. And I would argue that they're still constituting um 20 to 25 percent of of sales so that's that's creating like a floor and those prices are going up um primarily because uh it's a really safe area to park to park money um that being said 
I don't really see a risk of the the American real estate market cratering um, in that scenario. Um, and I don't see uh, BlackRock or any other large hedge fund uh, tied specifically to Chinese real estate. So again, if you know of it, put it in the chat room. I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I don't want to be right. I just want to be informed on this, right? So if you, if you have that information, I would really, really appreciate it. Uh, just, just point out which, which hedge fund, hedge funds uh, are completely dependent upon that, and show me that the that other vital things in the U.S. Uh, maybe credit markets um, and uh, pension funds are also tied to it you know, within one degree or something like that, one or two degrees, <laughs> then, then yeah, I would, I would be very worried about that. But it's just not the case as far as I can tell. And, I, and I've, I've been looking at this stuff and, uh, and researching it for the past month. Um, I haven't come across that connection, right? So if it's there, it's, it's a well-hidden connection. I think uh, the the world impact will be from them buying and selling commodities and also many other uh, goods uh, that'll hit Australia, uh, et cetera, um, hard. Oh yeah, that's true. It would hit hit the Australian market um, for sure. Uh, turning them into rentals. Yeah, Sanjay. Sanjay has it uh, on the nose. Turning it into rentals. Um, that's that's really the goal i think there um you know it harkens back to um the the 1400s to the 1600s uh feudal europe right i mean if you if you look at the uh the the all the wealth there uh it was primarily hey uh you have lords and knights um you have this this higher class that owns land and uh they're essentially glorified landlords, right? That's where all their income comes from, from uh, landlords um, or being landlords. And so I think uh, I think finally uh, Wall Street has kind of like figured out or these large these large funds have kind of figured out like, oh, hey, here's here is a here is a return that's guaranteed. It's rental. <laughs> it's a rental market. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't really see any. Uh, any slowdown there um, with the rental market, it would it would take some some sort of disruptor to come out and uh, and change things, um, and it would also require. I mean, I hate to say it, but it would also require the people in power to voluntarily give up some of their power, which isn't going to happen. So, <laughs> so that's uh, so yeah, this is not a trend that I see going away uh, anytime soon. I'm long corruption, so I'm long the stock market, um, and I'm long the real estate market in the U.S. Uh, as far as commodities go, yeah, that's a that's kind of a bummer. Um, there there has been uh, a lot of commodity demand as China has tried to uh, has has just been artificially creating their own GDP number. Uh, they artificially create that by um, uh, essentially infrastructure and real estate spending. So they they create uh, a ton of real estate that no one can afford and no one buys, uh, but it does it does create an artificially high GDP number. And uh, I don't know what the end game there is. I guess, I guess it's because they're trying to lure in foreign investment. They're trying to make it so that uh, they become the, uh, the linchpin. Um, 
I'm going to talk more about China uh, with Jake. So Jake Pelly, I don't know if it's going to be this Friday uh, or next Wednesday, uh, but we have a lot, <laughs> a lot of stuff to cover. I know that he's he's more worried about this than I am. Uh, in the community, you're going to find that most of the time, uh, most of the time, and most of the time, there's a crisis. Um, I'm going to look at it primarily as like, okay, it's not the real reason why things are falling, and uh, it's going to everything's just going to bounce back in a few months anyway. So. Let's just keep that in mind. So, so yeah, there's the specter now of uh, of hyperinflation. No, we're not going to have hyperinflation. Um, and there's the specter of systemic risk. No, it's not going to become systemic risk. Um, and there's the specter of uh, of the Fed and over leveraging and manipulation. And I'm just going to say that well, that's that's been around now for decades anyway. So that's not real change. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of the cooler in that where um where if there's a crisis um then uh, then i tend to just downplay it <laughs> right and historically i would be right most of the time um on that that's that's what uh, what i hope everyone really wants to aim for is that um it's not specifically right all the time but just in line in line with uh with with the market the you know the market the market forces what's what's really happening um, under the surface um, so yeah we'll see we'll see how that turns out boom, boom, boom. so I'm going to pose it to you again in the communities maybe I don't know if uh, if any anything I've talked about today has changed your mind at all um, but uh, but yeah what do you think do you think we're we're destined for a large pullback, uh, I will say that the other the other thing that I've I have legitimately seen a correlation to over time with larger degree market pullbacks is credit market liquidity, right? And uh, and primarily one of the things I look at is the repo repo market, um, and uh, there's repo market, bond market, um, but but when when considering these things, the the best way to, to think about them that I've found um, or heard is to view it as a balance of cash versus collateral, right? Um, the let's see, do I have enough time? This might be the last thing that I mentioned that I talk your ear off on, uh, but there we go. Yeah, we're about we're about at the hour anyway. Um, but when when there's too much collateral and there's no cash or zero liquidity that's when that's when when we have a scenario for a huge stock market like crash or, or a very big downturn and I'll, I'll point out a few a few things here um, so I'm gonna hop back over here uh, let's think about this so so everyone uh, uh, tends to think of this as the COVID crash I actually think of this as a liquidity crash um, because COVID, and I, I, I love to point this out, January. So COVID is uh, it starts hitting starts hitting the headlines in January. Okay, so right right around here starts hitting the headlines in January. Okay, then uh, we talk about lockdowns right around here, right? And the market still charges higher, right? But on the twelfth of February. Bloomberg runs an article, right? 12th or the, the uh, 11th, I believe, runs an article that the Fed is going to stop liquid, like adding liquidity to repo markets. 
That's what I think. That's what I think this created this. Now, I'm not saying that that this wouldn't have uh, ha that we wouldn't have had some sort of correction, but I'm talking about the degree of the correction, and that's when liquidity markets freeze up. When there's a lack of liquidity, everyone has has uh, collateral but no liquidity. That's when this. That's when within. That's when these corrections get magnified. You know, and right here. So this this happens forever. And right here, this is the date. It's literally. It's not the date of the low, but it's like the day before that the Fed comes out and announces, "Hey, we're going to inject trillions of dollars into the capital markets." Right, and we have one scare day, and from there, boom, off to the races, because now the leverage machine has been primed once again. Right, um, the other time that that happened was uh, was back here, and the uh, Fed was raising interest rates. Right, they finally, finally, uh, uh, there was an opportunity to raise interest rates, um, raising interest rates and tapering. Uh, I believe the taper had already started. So the taper, I think, was announced uh, way back here. You know, boom, we have this big move down, way back here, and then we started talking about interest rates. So the combination of taper and interest rates uh, happened happened around here. There was a move down. Everyone, I think, was waiting for the Fed to come out and say, "Hey, we're changing our mind on this," and it didn't happen. Uh, it didn't happen until uh, right around here. The Fed announces. Hey, we're open. We're open to uh, adjusting interest rates and buy and buying back bonds, um, you know, um, in order to think, keep things going. <laughs> right? Boom, 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 boom. Leverage machine is once again primed, and um, it's not that there are no there aren't pullbacks uh, during this in this environment, but as long as the credit markets are are capitalized and liquid, and as long as uh, interest rates and tapering are not happening at the same time, um, then it makes it very difficult to have um, to have any any true kinds of pullback. The other irony here is uh, that I found is um, the announcement. So uh, right at the announcement of a taper or a pullback, um, there's not this immediate like oh everything's just going crazy and, and selling off right. Um, uh, instead, <laughs> it's it, it waits. It's like it's waiting to finish out the quarter or something like that. And then, uh, and then after that period, um, you know, there's some canary in the coal mine. Uh, like I, I like to look for uh, repo operations freezing up um, or various other credit credit things uh, freezing up. And then, boom, accelerated, huge, crazy water waterfall uh, stuff happening. And currently, currently the credit markets are fine. Liquidity is fine. Um, in fact. Uh, there was this awesome Bloomberg article, uh, not Bloomberg, but there was a, this awesome like, let's see, repo 1.35, I think was the was the news repo uh, market record, and I'll put this back up on the screen here. Yeah, boom. So re uh, Fed reverse repo usage hits record high. Record high here, uh, <laughs> trillion Tuesday uh, on Thursday. So was this really long time ago? Yes, it was a long time ago. It was a whole whopping week, <laughs> one week ago, right? 
that that we saw this this crazy demand, this crazy amount of liquidity in there. Uh, part of that is because all the money that the that the Fed pumped into the markets was slightly too much, and this is kind of banks self balancing, uh, getting getting cash off their off their books and and kind of trading it in for um, for holding some some bond collateral for a little bit, uh, for overnight operations, getting a little bit uh, of money back, but they doubled the limit that uh, large banks or individual users can park into the repo market to 160 billion, right? So it used to be 80 billion. And so now uh, there's a lot more liquidity uh, flowing through. Um, this this uh, debt ceiling thing is, is pointed out here uh, because that would, that would affect a credit rating, right? So I can understand why there's concern about that. Um, but this has all happened in the past, right? I block this. It's all that happened in the past. What do you guys think? Um, I think you know. There's there's nothing new to this. There's nothing new to uh, uh, politicians holding each other hostage with a debt, you know, a debt ceiling thing. Um, it's happened in the past, uh, and you can kind of see how markets reacted uh, to it in the past. Um, yeah, there's some downside, but man, it's it's not. It doesn't turn into anything like insane. Yeah, that's what Dr. Fish was asking. Um, is it really all about the Fed balance sheet? Uh, isn't it really all? Yeah, uh, G1 it is. Um, it really is about the Fed balance sheet. Um, there is a, uh, uh, there's something interesting in the, in the market uh, to bring up a point that G1 is talking about here. If you, if you look at the stock market growth and returns and then you counterbalance it against the Fed balance sheet, uh, the stock market never came back after the global financial crisis, right? So I'm looking at the stock market charts, you know. Yes, I'm looking at the stock market charts, um, but but actual real growth um, for these companies hasn't hasn't actually come back or recovered since global financial crisis. If you back out all the uh, all the liquid, um, uh, if you back out the Fed balance sheet, uh, propping up uh, liquidity in the uh, in the market in general. So there's that's a really good point. It's a really valid point, um, but. I don't trade the stock market versus the Fed balance sheet, right? I mean, I kind of do because as soon as the Fed says, hey, we're going to bail out people, right? Historically, that has been the best indicator to, to basically back the truck up, <laughs> back the buck up, uh, the truck up and just load it, just just start piling stuff in, right? And um, and the, the prime benefactor of that, uh, off of that kind of announcement has been, um, has been tech, right? Um, every, I'm very curious now. So one of the things I'm going to look at, cause I'm going to end the show and I'm going to head to the charts. So one of the things now I'm kind of wondering about is like, is there a pattern to these fed announcements of like the fed coming out and saying, Hey, massive bailout, right? Because, uh, there was that 2018 announcement and then there was the, um, 2020 announcement and it does feel like every, it does kind of feel like, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm just imagining things. It does kind of feel like every two and a half-ish years, two, two and a half years, uh, the Fed comes out and, you know, there's a gun to the head of the Fed. Didn't mean for that to rhyme, but there, there's a gun to the head situation and the Fed crumbles and says, okay, 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 we'll turn the money taps back on, free money flowing back into the market you know, and, uh, and once again, rewarding, um, really bad, uh, corporate behavior, (laughs) 
right? Uh, but that's that's the reality that we live in. Um, the point is not to grow your company. The point is to um, to cheat the system uh, and become as big as possible so that the Fed has no no choice but to bail you out when you when you mess up everything, right? So, um, yeah. We'll end on that note. I'll see you on Friday. Uh, once again, I'm gonna try and get uh, I'm gonna try and get a co-host on for Friday. It's kind of weird for me to to do the breakout show uh, solo. So uh, forgive me for kind of stumbling around. It's it's much easier to actually have someone uh, here in the studio to um, to interview or at least to have a conversation with uh, about these various topics. But you've all been great. Um, I'll see you uh, if you're around Friday, same time, 11 a.m. Pacific time, 2 p.m. Eastern time uh, for the breakout show.